1: What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, hi, everyone. It is my thrill today to announce that Professor Claire Wright, OAM, has joined us here at Short Black.
2: Hi, Sandra. How are you?
1: I'm well, thanks. Now, one of the reasons you attracted my attention is that in March this year, you launched a Monument of One's Own campaign. It's all about acknowledging the role of women in Australia historically. And really, when it comes to statues around this country, there are very few that actually celebrate women, just 3%. We actually have more statues of animals in this country than we do of women. That's appalling. It's a pretty stark statistic, isn't it, Sandra? It's really extraordinary
2: to myself and my co-campaigner, Christine Zavica, that there hasn't been more focus or attention on the fact that women are so unrepresented in our urban and rural landscapes in this way. I mean, every single person knows where their local shrine of remembrance is and can point to the monument that shows the list of the diggers who died in the first world war and it's not that those shouldn't be there but the fact that they create such a kind of monolithic presence across our towns and cities it's like a kind of great wall of china you can't see anything else so it's not about tearing other statues down an idea that crops up from time to time and and we're certainly seeing it again now all over the world with the Black Lives Matter campaign. But our campaign is not so much about tearing things down but building more statues and monuments and memorials to women who have shaped this country.
1: When it comes to the role of women in Australia's history and the birth and growth of this nation, it's largely gone unacknowledged. Why do you think that's happened? More by default than design? Oh, well, there's that little thing called patriarchy. That
2: doesn't help. So, you know, it helps to maintain the status quo of patriarchy if you only allow for a male cast of characters. Once you start to acknowledge that women were there too, generally alongside the men and um, often working collaboratively, you know, one of the problems about writing so-called women's history is that. People conceive of that in terms of a kind of modern gender relations paradigm that's about animosity and antipathy and antagonism, a kind of war between the sexes. But that's simply not true for a lot of human history when men and women were together on the frontier. And I don't mean that in a heroic sense. Women were doing some pretty bad things on that frontier as well. But they were sharing spaces. They were working collaboratively. They were building communities. They were tearing down other communities. They were colonizing. They were imperialists. They were racists. And they did that in tandem with their their husbands and their brothers and their fathers. And of course, there, there were also the women who were specifically fighting for women's rights like the women in Australia, the suffrage campaigners, who did make Australia the first country in the world to give women full political equality. That's the right to stand for parliament and the right to vote. New Zealand women were the first to win the right to vote in 1893, but they didn't get the right to stand for parliament until 1919. So the fact is that Australia was the global leader in democratic practice And something that the rest of the world knew about and was incredibly focused on Australia and what was going on down here in this incredibly radical progressive era, which was the first 10 years of the 20th century. The problem is not that there weren't women there doing it, it's that we haven't remembered them doing it. And we haven't remembered the kind of country that we were, partly because of the country that we became.
1: I'm talking to you from Sydney, and of course, many people are familiar with Mrs Macquarie's chair, but I don't think a lot would realise the role she played in creating the domain and many of the green spaces, how she worked together with the Governor, Governor Macquarie, in the planning of Sydney. You often mention a woman called Muriel Matters. She was an Adelaide suffragette who made quite the mark in London. What's her story?
2: Muriel Matters is just an extraordinary woman, and she should be a household name. The fact that she has initials that alliterate should help us all remember Muriel Matters. Muriel was an actress from Adelaide, and in the first decade of the 20th century, she decided, like lots of Australian girls did, to go to London to try to seek her fame and fortune on the British stage. She had had a, um, a mediocre career here in Australia, and it was really time for her to expand her horizons. She happened to arrive in London at an incredibly formative time in the British suffragette movement. The suffragettes, of course, were that band of British suffrage campaigners who had started to use militant tactics to draw attention to the Votes for Women campaign. Of course, women had been advocating for the right to vote in England since the 1860s, but they had um, been using what were considered constitutional means, you know, petitioning, sending deputations to Parliament. Um, doing all the polite and legally restrained things and ladylike things to do. And suddenly Muriel arrived in London, had a kind of me too moment in a way. She discovered in the British theatre scene that women were terribly exploited. The actresses were treated a little better than prostitutes. Many of them were actually kind of um, dragooned into what was then known as the white slave trade, which was a kind of international prostitution ring. And they had no course of action. And she started collectivising the actresses into a kind of a union. And this is the moment when Muriel starts to become politicised herself. At the same time, we're talking 1905, Emmeline Pankhurst's WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, started opening branches in London. And Muriel happened to find herself at one of these suffragette branch meetings one night. And she realised in a kind of epiphany, that uh, her true calling wasn't on the theatrical stage, it was on the political stage. And then she realised that she had a number of skills on her side. One, um, she was an actress and, and an elocutionist, and she could communicate and she could communicate passionately and with emotion. Two, she was an Australian. And this held great cachet in London at the time because Australian women had these very rights that the British women had been struggling for for almost 50 years now. So, Muriel managed to kind of use all of these skills to create what became one of the suffragette movement's greatest weapons, which was this. She was known around the world as that daring Australian girl, and she made headlines around the world with some of her exploits and antics. Muriel's first piece of what can only be called public political theatre was to quite craftily get herself invited into the ladies' gallery of the House of Commons this was a chamber that riled and humiliated women particularly Australian women when they came to London. If you were a woman in England and you wanted to watch parliamentary proceedings you had to sit in a tiny little room up in the heavens in the House of Commons and not only were you very far from the action but you had to sit behind a metal grill it was like being a caged animal. And uh, the justification that was given for the grill was that they didn't want, the British Parliament didn't want those male politicians to be distracted by the sight of all these lovely ladies up there in the gallery. But the way that the women experienced this was as a form of segregation and humiliation. So what Muriel did was she snuck up there and underneath her gown, she had a chain concealed in her skirt. And at an appropriate moment, she rushed forward and she chained herself to the grill. She locked herself with a padlock and then she started shouting out votes for women slogans and making speeches from the ladies' gallery. And she's still credited with being the first woman to speak in the House of Commons. I was actually in London last year for the launch of my book, Your Daughters of Freedom. And I happened to tag along at the back of one of the tours of Westminster And this story was told about the woman who went up and chained herself to the grill and was the first woman to speak in the House of Commons. But they didn't happen to mention that this woman was an Australian. I was most peeved. So in the end, they sent up the guards to try to get her away. They couldn't unlock her. And so they ended up cutting away the whole grill and carrying her down the stairs, still attached to this big metal grate. And if you happen to be lucky enough to live in Adelaide or you do visit Adelaide when travel restrictions ease, you can go to Parliament House down there on North Terrace and in the front foyer, there is a section of the grill, the actual grill from the House of Commons. It was just um, the sort of publicity stunt that the suffrage movement needed at the time to really raise the cry, to make it a cause celeb and to start getting the popular support behind the movement that the politicians at the time said was needed in order to prove that women actually wanted the vote. Because one of the arguments was that only educated, drawing room, doctor's wives type of women actually wanted to vote, that most women couldn't care less. And so they had to prove otherwise. And Muriel was an incredibly important weapon in that campaign.
1: It is extraordinary, isn't it, to this day, that most Australians have never heard of Muriel Matters. Are we going to get a monument to her?
2: Oh, well, if we've got anything to do with it, we certainly will. You know, it's really incredible, Sandra, to think that you can get a a bronze statue made for about $100,000. We have a campaign that is launching in Melbourne for a statue of Zelda Di Prano, an equal rights campaigner. And we decided to make her the first cab off the rank in our a Monument of One's Own campaign because equal pay is something that affects all women. And it's $150,000 for that statue. And the artists who are making it, Gilly and Mark, who are globally recognised artists, are actually donating 50% of the costs to it. Why I raise that figure is because it's pertinent that in this year, 2020, which is the 250th anniversary of Cook's landing, Captain Cook's landing in Australia, the federal government has earmarked $50 million to a new memorial at Cornell, the point at which Captain Cook first made landfall in uh, New South Wales. $50 million would buy you a lot of statues of women in every city, country, town, state and territory. And I think that everybody could name some woman who has made an important contribution to their local area. And Muriel is one who has made an important contribution to not only national but international history. And we don't know her name. How many more women are there out there who we could be starting to learn about, learn about their courage, learn about their visions, learn about their ambitions and their achievements if we had a kind of national campaign to start to litter our streets with these new images?
1: We have a history, an illustrious history in the women's movement, not just being the second country in the world to get the vote. We actually led the world on paid maternity leave for one. We had so many strong women doing so many remarkable things. And as you say, they're just not recognised anywhere. I was reading recently about the history of Canberra, Sir Walter Burley Griffin. He's credited with being the architect of the city, and yet his wife whom he worked with hand in glove in establishing Canberra, worked with the internationally renowned Frank Lloyd Wright for years and was acclaimed in her own right, yet she gets no credit at all. So if it wasn't for the likes of you and your research, we wouldn't find out about these remarkable women.
2: Yeah, Marianne Marnie Griffiths uh, is the woman that you're referring to. And again, she was a woman like Muriel Matters who was very well known in their time. So it's not like we are kind of discovering people, you know, who have never been celebrated before. Many of these women were celebrated in their own era. It's just that we've forgotten about them, that they've become lost to history. Of course, we've got to remember that um, there's a difference between history and the past. The past is a time concept and history is a human construct. History only happens because we people write history, people make history. And so it's beholden to us to, to ask the questions that will lead us back to that past that has become, you know, hidden. One of the great myths in Australian history is that our nation was born at Gallipoli and that the Anzac legend has become our kind of birth of the nation legend. And that is just complete nonsense. It's not to say that the Anzacs aren't valiant, worthy people and that the sacrifices they made in war weren't huge, but to say that Gallipoli is the birth of the nation is just historically incorrect. The nation was born with federation, a peaceful process of negotiation and collaboration between the various colonies, a process that was contributed to by men and women, and a process that actually delivered up this world-leading standard, which was equal political rights for men and women. And I should importantly say white women, because Indigenous women didn't get the vote or the right to stand for Parliament. In fact, Indigenous men and women were disenfranchised by the same act of Parliament, the Franchise Act of 1902, that gave white women those world-leading rights. But the fact of the matter is, we don't even have a monument to celebrate that incredible global victory. You know, 2002 was the centenary of women's suffrage in Australia. And there was going to be a huge memorial that was planned in Canberra. that was going to sit on the lawns between Old Parliament House and the War Memorial, around in that section, just beyond where the tent embassy is. This incredibly beautiful sculpture, I've seen um, concept drawings of it, was planned. But then some people started to complain that it was going to block the view of the War Memorial. So the whole project was scuttled. And what we have instead, and I challenge listeners to go and find it if they're ever in Canberra, is what I like to call the Centenary of Women's Suffrage Memorial Fish Pond next to the wheelie bins, which is around the side next to Old Parliament House. And last time I was there, I went to the front desk at Old Parliament House and I said to the staff, can you please point me in the direction of the Centenary of Women's Suffrage Memorial? And they had no idea what I was talking about. I mean, what sort of nation does not want to celebrate its global achievements? You know, the United States is having its centenary of women's suffrage. This year, 2020, is the hundred years since the um, amendment to the Constitution that gave women the right to vote in America. And there is a whole women's museum being built in Washington to celebrate this incredible milestone, this democratic milestone. And we've got a fish pond. I mean, really. Are we going to take ourselves seriously as a nation or what? But if we are going to take ourselves seriously as a nation and a player on the global stage, we have to recognize the achievements of women.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: Quite timely with the celebration of women's rights in America is the television series Mrs. America, starring our very own Kate Blanchett and Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem. One person who's not mentioned, though, is Anne Summers, who actually partnered with Gloria in Ms Magazine to great acclaim, another strong feminist voice in the Australian landscape that is still largely unrecognised by the broader community.
2: Yeah, if I was Anne Summers, I'd be pissed off. It's the same with that film Suffragette that was made about the British suffrage movement a few years ago. I think it's a terrific film. There was a huge outcry at the time that no women of colour were represented in that film, and though I think that that's a valid point... There weren't really any black leaders of the movement, but what they did leave out was any Australian leaders of the movement, of whom there were many, including another woman who is not well enough known in Australia, Vida Goldstein. But coming back to Anne Summers, you know, Anne's a a terrific example of the way Australian women have shown such extraordinary leadership in the global feminist space throughout the 20th century. And Anne was the first advisor to the Prime Minister in the Office for Women. And she was really one of the leaders in another sort of great social movement that Australians women pioneered, which was the idea of the Femocrat. These were feminists who got into the civil service, who became part of the public service and who instituted all sorts of changes that really helped the lives of women, like no-fault divorce. And um, as you said, the maternity allowance was a great development, a progressive development of the early 20th century. And then there were all of these other raft of changes that that happened, in in a sense, very quietly in the 1970s. Things like women's shelters, childcare, equal opportunity legislation that said that women couldn't be sacked if they got pregnant or married. The end of the marriage bar in the public service. I mean, our mothers would remember and certainly our grandmothers, that if you got married up until the late 1960s, early 1970s, you had to leave your job in the public service. That included teachers, postmistresses, scientists who worked at the CSIRO, any woman who worked for a government body. And there are all these stories of women who hid their marriages. I've got an old woman who lives across the road from me. She never married. And I was chatting to her one day, she's in her 90s now, she told me that the reason she never married was because she worked at the State Library of Victoria and she loved her job as a librarian. She said she had plenty of marriage offers, but to accept them would mean that she'd have to lose her job. And so she had to make that choice and she chose to stay at the library. She's kind of a hero of mine. It is one of the extraordinary things about historical memory, how quickly we lose it. And why it's important that we have things like television series and like podcasts like yours that reveal these things, like history books that continuously remind us of the things that we could so easily forget. And one of the reasons why I think that's important and why I've done a lot of the work that I've done, particularly I made a documentary for the ABC that was called Utopia Girls about how Australia became the first country in the world where women... One equal political rights, was because I was concerned that the loss of historical memory leads people to lose a sense of historical process and how change happens. It's so easy to take for granted now our voting rights. It's so easy to take for granted that we just walk up to our primary schools, get our democracy sausage and cast our vote. So much so that we often think it's a nuisance without remembering that women fought for 60 years for the right to walk up to that primary school on that day and to be taken seriously, to be believed that they had the mental capacity to cast a vote, that they overcame arguments about the fact that it would be the end of the family and they'd stop having children if they could vote or they'd just vote the way that their husbands wanted them to. All the sorts of gendered ideas and attitudes about what women were capable of you can't change the world if you don't know how people have changed it before you, how people have struggled, how they have strategized, how they've campaigned, how they've collectively come together and indeed how they've made history. And I think that if you do have a sense of that process, that it emboldens you, it emboldens young women today to be able to say, well, you know, I see an injustice. I see it in front of me. And I also can see that the only way to try to change that situation is to act, because that's what women
1: have done throughout time. Well, you're out to smash the bronze ceiling by creating statues that acknowledge women's role in Australia's formation and, of course, the contribution they've made to the life we all enjoy today. Many young women won't admit that they are feminists and it sounds to me like you believe they're unaware of the role these women have played to provide all the freedoms they now enjoy.
2: Yeah, well the, the label feminist is a um it's one that comes with its own trajectory and its own history. And I, I do believe that if women understood the actions of women in the past, they might be a bit more forgiving about that label in some ways. But I think it's also important to state here that this campaign to put more statues is not just about celebrating nationhood, because nationhood is part of a white colonial experience that in its own right, it makes invisible and hides and overrides the experience of Indigenous Australian women. So I like to think of it more in these terms. Instead of actually celebrating the nation, it's about celebrating values and characteristics that we might like to associate with Australians. So they might be courage and independence and freedom and innovation and humour and adventurousness. And once you start looking at those concepts that are generally gendered male and start seeing them as human characteristics that don't belong to a gender, but also they don't pertain to a colour. Then we can also look at the activities of Indigenous women in the ways that they have fought to protect country, to protect their people, protect their own rights and independence. We can see that as being a continuous unbroken history, between Indigenous women who were doing that 200 years ago and Indigenous men and women who are still doing that now. So I think it's really important that we see any campaign to put new statues in our civic landscapes as a process that is inclusive. And it's one of the reasons that on the website for A Monument of One's Own, you have a nomination page for people to nominate their own woman who they believe deserves a monument because there are people, even though I've been a historian for 30 years now, there are certainly many women whose activities I am going to be unaware of. So it's really important that this isn't a top-down process, but that it's bottom-up and it celebrates values.
1: You've also unearthed the forgotten rebels of Eureka.
2: Yeah, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka was a wonderful project that set me on my course in in so many ways. And this is a perfect example of what I was discussing earlier about women and men who were working collaboratively, not against each other. They were, in fact, working together for their collective rights on the goldfields of Victoria in the 1850s. The problem is that the Eureka story, which is taught in primary schools, it was when I was a primary school student and it still is when my three children went through primary school over the last decade. And it's still taught in the same way, which is that the military and the miners of Ballarat in 1854 slogged it out for democratic freedoms that we enjoy today and that all of those people were men. The fact of the matter is uh, after 10 years of research, I was able to tell this extraordinary story about the third of the population who were women and children and about all of the political, economic, social, cultural, intellectual roles that women played in that movement for democratic change. To see Eureka as the birthplace of Australian democracy, which is the way that it is taught and the way we remember it, and to teach it as if women weren't there is not only a travesty of justice, but it is just diminishing the story. It's so much more fun, it's so much more exciting, it's so much more interesting when you put those chicks back in it because they were great. You know, they were larger-than-life characters. In fact, that book is currently being made into a 10-part television drama series. The pilot script is doing the rounds in Hollywood as we speak. The pilot script is written by an extraordinary screenwriter and executive producer called Anne Kenny, which some of your listeners will know that Anne Kenny as a writer from the very popular Outlander series. It's certainly how I first became aware
1: of Anne and her work. There are so many good stories. Another of your books is Beyond the Ladies' Lounge, Australia's Female Publicans. For me, born in the 60s, I remember going with my mum to pick up my dad from the local pub. We weren't allowed in the front bar. We had to sit in the car and wait until Dad had finished up. What I love about you and what you do is that you're unearthing all these great Australian stories. Are there any other women you'd like to tell us about?
2: Let's talk about Zelda de Prano, because she is the woman we are focusing on for the first cab off the rank, if you want, in the A Monument of One's Own campaign. We like to call this Operation Zelda. Zelda de Prano, I think, tells a great Australian story. She was the daughter of Russian Jewish immigrants. She was brought up in Carlton. She left school at the age of 14. She had a child by um, the age of 17 and was married, and she worked in a variety of menial jobs. She was working in the meat industry in 1969 when an equal pay campaign was launched, and the meat workers were the test case for this campaign. Zelda, with her minimal education and her immigrant background, was appalled at the fact that there were All of these men, including Bob Hawke, standing up and talking about equal rights for women and not one single woman was asked to give their perspective. There was not one single woman's voice in that courtroom. Unsurprisingly, the case was lost. Zelda decided to start her own campaign. And I had the great fortune of being able to interview Zelda when she was in her 90s just shortly before her death. She admitted to me that she was terrified. Here she was, a prim 1960s housewife. She made all of her own clothes and she did exactly what Muriel Matters did. She chained herself to the front of the Commonwealth buildings. It was her lunch break. She said she made sure that she didn't have anything to drink beforehand because she was afraid that she'd have to go and do a
1: wee while she was chained. So very practical. I'm looking at the picture actually of her carrying the banner and it says, no more male and female rates, one rate only.
2: Isn't it a marvellous picture, Sandra? And you know what she also told me? The reason that that picture is there and that we have that as an historical document and it's now become an iconic image is because Zelda herself rang up Channel 7 and she told them she was going to do it and she made sure that the cameras were there that day. She recognised that if she was going to get any attention at all, she was going to have to whip up all the publicity herself. And indeed, she did. And the following year, she was part of a movement that started the first Women's Liberation Front in Melbourne at the same time that Anne Summers, incidentally, was starting a women's liberation movement in Adelaide. And Zelda became a fierce campaigner for women's rights particularly industrial rights and women's rights to control over their own bodies. Zelda was honoured with an honorary doctorate from La Trobe University a couple of years ago. And in her acceptance speech, I think she's possibly the first person ever to talk about their own abortion. This is just the kind of woman that Zelda was. She wasn't going to let anything cow her. And I think that this is an extraordinary Australian story.
1: I'll just quote her at the time. I just couldn't believe this and I thought, here are all the women, here we are, all sitting here as if we haven't got a brain in our bloody heads, as if we're incapable of speaking for ourselves on how much we think we're worth. And here are all these men arguing about how much we're worth and all men are going to make the decision. Yeah.
2: You know, the other thing that Zelda said, and I love this, is that when, so she's standing there, she's chained to the front of the Commonwealth building and somebody comes over to her and says, well, what difference do you think this is going to make? What difference can one woman make? And she said, well, today there is one of me and tomorrow there will be two and the next day four and the next day eight. And that's how it's going to go. And, you know, indeed, this is the very start of the women's movement in Australia. And now we can Google Women's Liberation 1970s and look at the images of all the women and men who were their allies on the streets of Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide and Brisbane, marching down the streets with their placards, just as we've seen with the anti-racist rallies over the last few weeks. It does take a movement to create change. And one of the things that I think is so important about having a statue of Zelda is that I imagine the day when not just little girls walk past the statue and turn up to their mum or their dad and say, what did she do? But I also look forward to the day when little boys do that. And I think the thing about honouring women's role in history is that not only does it give role models for young women, but it's also really important for men to recognise that women share the space. And I think what that does is help to close the respect gap. And as we know, we've been told all the time in terms of domestic violence and all of the research is now showing that at the heart of so much misogyny, racism, and sexual and domestic abuse is a lack of respect. And what better way to start to chip away at that lack of respect is to show in our towns and our cities That we, the people, respect what women have done in the past by casting them in bronze. It's very symbolic, but I think that it is very, very important that we start to have this kind of recognition.
1: So true. Professor Claire Wright, I really applaud your efforts and I can't wait for the day when I'm reading the news and Operation Zelda has come to fruition and her statue is unveiled in Melbourne. What a magnificent moment that'll be! and an accolade for you and all the efforts you put in to recognise these extraordinary women who've come before us and created the generous and free path that we all enjoy today. Thank you so much for spending time with us here at Short Black. Thanks,
2: Andrew. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Short Black and for your support. We're taking a short break, but don't worry, we'll be back soon with some more amazing women. In the meantime, why not check out some of our other 10 Speaks podcasts wherever you get your pods. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.
2: 10 Speaks' latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country. Stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Nerelda Jacobs and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page, on 10 Play or
0: wherever you listen to podcasts.